0: My name is Justin McClune I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club, Hot Edition.
1: Oh, man. Uh, here in Toronto, we've been suffering from a really bad heat wave, temperatures of 35 degrees Celsius folks man's not supposed to be out there in weather like this man's supposed to be at home uh putting his feet in a bucket of ice water
0: (laughs) or a room with the windows closed no air conditioning (sighs) just sweating as we talk about westerns or specifically about director bud bedeker
1: bud bedeker is one of those directors who's been on my list of things to check out for a long time because he's in my favorite category of director uh people who the french critics in the 1950s and 60s loved oh
0: man do they love him like
1: and and specifically like studio filmmakers who made B movies mm-hmm. and who were not particularly heralded in their home country, but who the French critics discovered.
0: And so Bud Bedeker also had the perfect string of movies for those French critics to just glom on which is he made a series with Randolph Scott and the same screenwriter, Burt Kennedy,
1: and the same producer, Harry Joe Brown. And they were known as the Renown Cycle. Renown Cycle? I think Renown. Renown Cycle. Renown Cycle, because it was like a half- Randolph Scott,
0: half uh, brown. And yeah. these Westerns were 70 to like 78 minutes, mm-hmm. very compact. Oftentimes they would use very similar stories, almost as if Baedeker and his screenwriter and star were trying to like get the perfect example of what they were trying to do. There were seven of
1: these films made between 1956 and 1960. Most of them were made for Paramount. And I say seven, there is some debate as to which ones are official ones, because I think there was one that Harry Joe Brown didn't produce, there were maybe two that Burt Kennedy didn't write, but let's face it, Bud Bedeker, Randolph Scott, these are the two men These are the key
0: guys, Mm -hmm. and there are seven films. So other than these Westerns, Bud Bedeker actually directed a lot of films, Mm -hmm. and most people will go, nah, yeah, they're fine. He worked in Poverty Row for a long time. Mm -hmm. He made amazingly titled films like The Killer Shark starring Roddy McDowell. He he made
1: several films with Roddy McDowell at my favorite studio ever, Monogram Pictures.
0: And Roddy McDowell in that place where, like, he's going from a kid star to a kind of washed-up, more adult star, Mm -hmm. and he stopped down in Poverty. During the journey.
1: Bud Bedeker and Randolph Scott, director and actor, are two people who both were journeymen for most of their careers Mm -hmm. before at this specific time and place in this specific combination of people for just a couple of years became great mm-hmm. or at least close to great
0: I'm coming from a position that like I haven't watched all of Bedeker's earlier films mm-hmm. like I'm sure some Bedeker heads out there will come at me and be like "Why, well, Escape from the Fog is a fantastic picture
1: and up until a week ago I had never seen any Bud Bedeker films mm-hmm. so I'm coming at this a virgin to the territory
0: and Bud Bedeker actually came to my notice when I saw that a DVD box set was released years and years and years ago. And on this DVD box set, it's tricked out with like a feature length documentary featuring Clint Eastwood, Martin Scorsese, um, Taylor Hackford, uh, everyone's favorite director of Ray. (laughs) (laughs) So
1: all of this and the fact that he directed Westerns, the fact that they're B movies, the fact that the French critics uh, love him, uh, got me very excited for him. And I also really didn't know what to expect. Mm -hmm. I think, first of all, I enjoyed... I watched five of the Renau and Westerns this week. I uh, had a good time and I enjoyed myself. I would not necessarily recommend watching five of these movies all at once.
0: They're very similar. They're very
1: similar. And, you know, in one of the DVD special features, Martin Scorsese talks about how they're not really standalone films exactly. They're all like one long film. And really, it was this period of like concentrated energy and inspiration in this, you know, five year period where these men working together created like a
0: cinematic space. I think that what attracts critics is the idea of mutation from film to film. Mm -hmm. Because like lines of dialogue and ideas will be repurposed over and over again. Like Randolph Scott as this hero who most of the time like just wants to settle down or wants revenge like that's the main theme of these films is revenge and what this revenge means and how do they go to achieve those goals
1: typically these films are about a lone man on a mission uh, played by Randolph Scott, who by this stage in his career, you know, he started as uh, an act, a character actor in Hollywood. He He was in several of the Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movies. He made war movies. But in the 40s and 50s, he got a niche making Westerns. None of which are classics, but uh, he just churned out Western after Western. And then in the 50s, as he got older, he worked with André de Toth. Another filmmaker that the French love. And he started to get a bit better. But then by the time he got to the Reneauan cycle, he was in his late 50s and early 60s. And, and it was in this period that he really came into his own. But before that, he was basically a journeyman actor. But he plays, you know, a lone man on a mission. He's got hidden motivations. Usually there's something in his past that broke him. Mm-hmm. And typically, spoiler alert, it's his wife was murdered. Oftentimes the story is about traveling from point A to point B, and you know that at point B some big confrontation is going to happen and, you know, over the course of this journey, Randolph Scott will be traveling with several people, people with questionable motivations. Uh there will often be a woman there who is his ostensible romantic interest, but Uh, They may or may not, probably will not, consummate that romantic interest. Mm -hmm. And there's a villainous character who he plays this kind of complicated uh, tango
0: with, uh, this psychological dance with. And so... These villains are bad, but they're not all bad. And they'll have moments of sympathy or moments where they appear human. But don't worry, they'll still be taken out at the end in the way that they're expected to be.
1: So, you know, a typical example is Ride Lonesome,
0: which... Which I I think many people consider like the ultimate example of the Bud Bedeker film. I think
1: it probably is. Uh, In this one, Randolph Scott plays a bounty hunter who captures a wanted killer, played by James Best from The Killer Shrews. Uh, while he's trying to take this killer, you know, to wherever he's taking him to collect his reward, he's warned that the killer's brother, played by Lee Van Cleef, is not going to let him get to wherever he's going. He's going to shoot him on the way. Little do they know that Randolph Scott and Lee Van Cleef have a history together. Uh, meanwhile, on the way there, Randolph Scott saves a pretty woman from some Native Americans. I should say that these movies are not not racist.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: so racist. <laughs> um, and... Along the way, he's joined by two partners, uh, one of whom is played by a young James Coburn.
0: Mm-hmm. And a very young James Coburn.
1: <laughs> I think playing, it's his first
0: movie. Playing like the, oh, shook sidekick <laughs> role. And
1: these two partners, their motivations are questionable. Maybe they want to take James Best for themselves.
0: Well, one of them uh, is known as a kind of villainous character who's done bad stuff in the past. And when he reveals that, well, if you bring James Best in, they could be granted amnesty. Oh, then things get a little bit more complicated, not too complicated.
1: But the movie is marked by, you know, several psychological relationships between Randolph Scott and these two partners by Randolph Scott and the woman. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the actress's name Uh, by Randolph Scott and Lee Van Cleef. Maybe we should talk a little bit about Randolph Scott as a screen presence. Man,
0: in Ride Lonesome, it looks like he just burst out of a comic book page. Because he's wearing like this brown kind of like outfit that turns into like a triangle to make him look even more barrel chested than he actually is. <laughs> he looks like what you would draw if you were a kid and someone asked you to just sketch like what a Western hero would look like. He's one of those actors who
1: uh, is kind of dancing on the thin line between being really wooden and also like being just very subtle i guess one of the things that's interesting about him is you can't quite tell yeah like to what extent he's a great actor
0: well like these movies are perfect because it's like the end-ish of his career so every character he plays has seen some shit Mm -hmm. and like you as a viewer imbue the character with more motivation than the film actually gives you because the film like while there is like a lot of psychological kind of to and fro, they're very straight ahead and lean movies. Mm -hmm. Like, they're not event after event after event. Like, you just take these in Mm -hmm. and you can tell, oh, well, they probably didn't spend that much money making them. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, But Randolph Scott, like, his, his face, I think,
1: conveys a lot. Again, you know, his face does nothing, and yet...
0: I think it does enough. Like, he's charming. Well, he's
1: like, he's like Gary Cooper, right? Where you can imagine being on the set with them and it seems like he's not even there. But, like blown up on a screen you know there's something in his eyes there's something in the way he uses his mouth mm-hmm. there's something in the way he modulates his voice that conveys
0: like the deep hurt of these men well as well
1: as they're like their complicated code of
0: honor you know? he's a hero right uh-huh. and like when you watch the movie you know he's a hero but what bedeker does in all these films is like you're not always sure what his motivations are like in ride lonesome like a lot of the drama in the film could have been cleared up by Randolph Scott going, oh, well, I'm doing this for this reason, and this is how it will end. But he just decides not to say that it's like you said because a, a man
1: w- doesn't say things like
0: that you a know? weird code of honor and mm-hmm. like all these films are defined by this where like a villain will go you won't shoot me in the back will you mm-hmm. and like Randall Scott won't shoot him in the back yeah so like something that needs to happen so the villain can still die in some way watching all these movies in
1: such close proximity they really started to blur together for me uh, because again so many of them have like the same story and I found these movies being defined not so much by like their stories as by individual scenes mm-hmm. so Uh, The Tall Tea, for instance, this is the movie where uh, Scott is on a stagecoach that's held up by a gang, uh, including a young, fresh-faced Henry Silva.
0: Yes, who is uh, named something that we cannot say on this podcast. Uh, But
1: the leader of the gang who finds out that the woman on the stagecoach, Maureen O'Sullivan, is actually uh, the daughter of a copper miner, a wealthy copper miner, and he, you know, wants to cash in on this. While he's holding them hostage, he, like tries to strike up a conversation with Randolph Scott because it's like, you know, these two guys I'm traveling with, all
0: they they
1: talk about is women. It's like, you know, a man gets lonesome sometimes. So, you know, can can we talk? And it's like a very beautiful little scene. Yeah.
0: Where he's like, ah, man, it'd be nice to just settle down, you know, like, I don't want to do this stuff. And,
1: All the great Western directors have their own particular view on the West. So, you know, John Ford's West is, you know, a West of community and a West of family Um, and and also a West that's like, you know, the untamed side of it is in constant conflict with the tame side. Bud Bedeker's West is a lonely West.
0: Well, it's a West in transition, like people going from one point to the other, never reaching that final destination that they're trying to reach and, like, hoping against hope that, man, maybe one day we can just settle down. Like, we do this one thing, Mm -hmm. maybe
1: it will happen. But, you know, the Randolph Scott character has oftentimes invested himself too much in this revenge plot. And, you know, by the time the movie's over, uh, it will be a Pyrrhic victory. That's how you say that, right? Pyrrhic, Pyrrhic. I don't I know. It's, no it's, it's a word I've never said in my life. And I've <laughs> read many times. It's, it's, it's not a sufficiently rewarding victory. And oftentimes he does, he doesn't get the girl. So in the first of these movies, seven men from
0: now, there's a beautiful moment where he almost kisses her and then doesn't. Well, uh, like ride lonesome, the revenge is finished so quickly right. That as a viewer, you go, wait, that's it? And you're like, yep, that is all that happened. That's right. And I think that, like, that's where the power of these movies come from. Because these are films that they're on the cusp of, like, the spaghetti western, which would lead into the uh, revisionist western. Mm-hmm. But Bud Bedeker, he's, like, at the beginning of that, kind of following Anthony Mann. Mm-hmm. But, like, kind of, you can, he's pushing in that direction.
1: You know, emphasizing the loneliness of his west, many of these movies are shot in cinemascope and normally in cinemascope you know it favors close-up shots and normally the academy ratio 1.33 to 1 that's where you see the whole human body well in a movie like ride lonesome you see a lot of the human body which means long shots with a whole lot of empty space surrounding them as if to emphasize how isolated they are in these like beautiful landscapes.
0: And I got a feeling that, um, Baedeker was also shooting his movies in the way that John Ford used to shoot them, which is knowing that they were going to be taken away from him by uh, the studio and cut without his opinion. And because of that, like something like ride lonesome is shot in a lot of very languid Mm -hmm. like big wides with like the camera kind of dollying and moving from character to character as they're on horses in a way that makes it very difficult to cut to keep get things moving
1: ride lonesome i think is a stunningly beautiful movie just just visually and like as a as a visual filmmaker like his shots are so like masterfully composed they're like geometric you know Mm -hmm. he like he figures so many kind of creative ways to disperse these bodies in the space, you Mm. know, and and, like the balance is
0: unbelievable. Well, everybody that talks about him talks about like the Bedeker shot, which Uh is that like tiny figure blasted on this giant landscape, even though that I read an interview that Bedeker said, and he kind of like shit on John Ford, especially the man who shot Liberty Valance, Mm. which was weird. But he talked about Ford as a director who kind of like fetishizes landscapes mm. and forgets people some of the time, which I mean, yeah. doesn't really line up with the way that I think of John Ford. But when you look at Baedeker's films, it seems like he's doing that as well. But in his mind, he's underlining the loneliness of the person in this landscape. Like yeah. it's beautiful. But like, look at this person in the middle of it. Yeah. Like isolated yeah. from all of it
1: i guess one of the more atypical ones is decision at sundown did you watch that one i did yeah
0: um bedeker talked about in the interviews that he loves to make movies where the hero is wrong and that's all that decision at sundown is about
1: this is actually one of my favorites of the like maybe second after ride lonesome and it's it carries like some of the same themes as the other ones but it, it has like the the presentation is slightly different because it's randolph scott rides into town and he interrupts a wedding because you know the the groom he blames for his wife's death Uh, But then over time, he finds out that actually it was a little more complicated
0: than that. And that he's actually kind of in the wrong while he's in the wrong. And like the situation that he got himself into led to more misery than if he had just done nothing in the Mm -hmm. first place. And I mean, there's a parallel uh, story in that film, like the director and screenwriter are like, oh no, like it won't all be misery where like out of the townspeople revolt against the corrupt sheriff and Mm -hmm. so and so. But that doesn't really have anything to do with Randolph Scott's story in the movie. Oh,
1: actually, one of the things I liked about the movie was that like this, this long shootout or this this long standoff is happening in this town but meanwhile like the town sort of goes on Mm -hmm. you know with this happening in the background yeah
0: i love this one moment where a character goes all right i'm just gonna leave i'm gonna go have supper and then i'm gonna come back like you can just stay here and it's this idea of like how do you make an action movie where you can't Stage that much action. Mm-hmm. Well, you have this like suspense, like it's a spaghetti western idea of how you would do something like this, like elongated time, mm-hmm. where something that usually happens really quickly, like a gunfight in a bedeker film, is like bang, 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 boom. They're they've fallen over. They're dead. Like mm-hmm. there's not any, like very stylized, crazy gun yeah, action. Yeah, yeah. The
1: violence isn't like the main attraction. No, that?
0: it's really the build up and then the release. And oftentimes that release is very like oh. That was it. But Baedeker, like, that's what he wants to impose on the audience. So what is the burning tree symbolic of? (laughs) Are we going to get into this? Yeah. I mean, like, we haven't really done an episode on auteurism. I'd like to. Like, just the idea of auteurism. Yeah, let's do an
1: episode on the auteur theory.
0: But you can see here, like, again, what people would be obsessed over. Like, all right, what does this mean in this movie when it's echoed later on in this one? I mean, you know, Baedeker was one of those, like, craftsman
1: who he certainly enjoyed the attention and the praise but mm-hmm. like he was also like
0: you know a very nose to the grindstone like uh, just keep a craftsman making movies even though that like he kind of floundered after this cycle of movies he made a couple pictures afterwards he made a gangster film in the middle of them Um the fall of legs diamond right? I didn't yeah, see it yeah, yeah I didn't see it either and afterwards he just kind of like went all over the place well, it's
1: incredible like the last of these movies Comanche Station I don't think he made another movie for nine years years after that and Mm -hmm. it was another western and then after that it was only two other documentaries you know i saw an interview with him that's on the new blu-ray set from the mid-80s when he appeared at um i think the bfi south bank talking about how oh yeah next year i'm gonna make uh an action picture
0: in spain I guess it never happened. Yeah, he talked about that till the end of his life. Like, one of the things that obsessed him was uh, bullfighting. Mm. Gross. Not a fan. Not a fan. Uh, And he actually made two pictures about uh, bullfighting. Uh, One of them that was based on his own life and another one that was, like, based on a friend of his. And that final picture that he wanted to make was, like... A variation of that bullfighting theme. Mm. But you can see, like, when someone's obsessed with bullfighting, you can see that extend into, like, the idea of manliness and honor, even though, like, bullfighting is just, you know, killing a defenseless animal. And, like, the relationship
1: between Randolph Scott and the villains in these movies Mm -hmm. is often, like, a bullfight. You know, there's a scene in Seven Men From Now. uh, There's a scene in many of these movies, but in that one where it's, like, uh he he has this very like cagey coded conversation halfway through with lee marvin um where where lee marvin is sort of like taunting him like Mm -hmm. very covertly and it's it's like it's the section in these movies where it's like almost like a state of the union of what the conflict is like here here are where the battle lines are and here's Uh, you know, stated in a very cagey way. And this is where they're going to be fought for the rest of the movie. That said, I wish I didn't watch all of them back to back to back, basically over the course of a week. By the time I got to the fifth one, I got a little bit tired. The same thing happened to me. The same thing, you know, kind of a similar plot over and over again. And like, there's something about, like, the loneliness of these movies. There's there's a lot of bad feeling in these movies <laughs> that kind of wore on me to, by the time I got to movie number five.
0: It, it's understandable that it's, like, an extension of where Bedeker and Randolph Scott and the screenwriter were and the producer in their lives, which is, like, we've made all these movies. Nobody cares. Like, it pays the bills. But what's the point of this? Like, there's a loneliness there. It's like, why do you continue <laughs> to keep doing this
1: job Uh, despite my misgivings about the specific way I watched these movies this week uh, I do think they, are, they do represent kind of a little minor miracle. Like, it's wonderful that this group of collaborators got together at this moment in time and were able to make this universe for seven movies. Ugh,
0: and they're all 70-ish minutes. Yeah, they're all 70-ish minutes. That's why I was able to watch five of them. <laughs> just like, oh, man, the pe- the brownies are so small. I could just eat so many of and them. And then you get a stomach <laughs> stomachache. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, hopefully people listening to this episode have enough kind of enthusiasm to go and watch one or two bedeker films and And then you take a break yeah this but
1: space them out like watch them once a year like they made them Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) and and you will
1: develop uh, a real fondness for this world that they've created this sad world where men were men and
0: uh
1: (laughs) women were women
0: Yeah, yeah the women are um not treated very well in these movies no
1: Two things. Uh, you watched one of the film noir movies he made. Mm-hmm. What can you say about that? How does it relate to the movies we watched?
0: Uh, I mean, the film noir was actually not as good as I wanted it to be. Uh, Bedecker, in an interview I read, said, like, this isn't really my thing. So it's kind of a hodgepodge that feels at once like a procedural and also, like, kinda expressionist, but not really, and it's spread over, like, a very wide tapestry that focus that you get in those Randolph Scott westerns is completely gone, because you have, like, 30 characters you're dealing with, mm. with Joseph Cotton being the main guy, mm. and I mean we love Joseph Cotton uh, yeah, of course, like, it doesn't <laughs> who S- doesn't love the Cain, Cottonster?
1: <laughs> yeah, Lady Frankenstein so it would be a very,
0: like, some Lady Frankenstein <laughs> it would be a very soft recommendation I was actually kind of of uh, remiss i didn't get a chance to watch his like poverty Rowe films because i do love that like 60 minute like simple concept direct yeah. especially escape uh from the fog which uh, i read some people say that it deals with like a woman dealing with ptsd from world war ii and it's all very expressionist and i'm like oh man mm-hmm. love that especially with fog in the title didn't get a chance to watch it
1: Finally, Burt Kennedy, the writer of most of these movies, went on to have a long and prolific career directing uh, Westerns, including Dirty Dingus McGee and a lot of other ones that aren't particularly... That was the uh, right. porno <laughs> version
0: of yeah. the Randall Scott Western. That's
1: what it's called, Dirty <laughs> Dingus McGee, uh, but he made a lot of movies that maybe you've heard of the title, probably haven't seen them, but uh, he ended his career on a real grace note by directing the Hulk Hogan, Christopher Lloyd hit Suburban Commando. Which
0: we will now talk about for 30 minutes. Minutes. Nah, I'm just kidding. You've seen Suburban Commando, right? Ages ago. Yeah. Me yeah. Too. In that, like, I gotta see these funny Hulk Hogan films. And you're like, eh, hey, these are not that funny. Yeah.
1: Santa Claus with muscles. The Randolph Scott of the 90s. <laughs>
0: Hulk Hogan. <Yes. laughs> oh man. That's what me and you gotta do. We gotta reclaim these Hulk Hogan pictures.
1: I Patreon episode?
0: Yep, let's, here we come. Let's
1: do it. Uh, Next time we have an afternoon where we can watch a piece of shit movie, let's watch a Hulk Hogan movie. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Alright, so. As per usual, you can send us letters at Podcast at gmail.com. Been a little bit late on the letters lately. Yeah, what's the problem, guys? So uh, send us your thoughts. Did Don't... you watch a Godfrey Hope film? You got any questions for us? Don't be afraid. <laughs> yeah. We won't bite or hurt you. Well, not too much.
1: Have I made fun of letter writers in the past? No. Okay.
0: Yeah, that I mean, maybe
1: we have a little bit, but we've... We... It was fun. It's like you're joshing with your friends. Yeah, yeah. Think about that.
0: hmm So our Patreon episode this week is we talk about Roger Corman again. It's been a while and there's a lot to talk about.
1: We may do, you know, 20 Patreon episodes about Roger Corman by the time we die. But this week we talked about his film group period. Mm -hmm. Film group was the company that he himself ran and distributed movies through in the late 50s and early 60s oftentimes some of his least expensive, least prestigious films, uh, but also Little Shop of Horrors and his famous Puerto Rico trilogy. So
0: for $5 a month, you can listen to that and you get three other episodes as well every month. So I'd like to thank every new Patreon subscriber. Very much appreciated. And if you're not, you can go to patreon.com slash important cinema club podcast and become one and become part of the important cinema club. I got to do like membership cards or something like oh, that that we could like great. send off to people. Yeah. Yeah. What are we doing next week, Will?
1: We'll be looking at the films of Lizzie Borden, who is most famous for her debut film, Born in Flames, which was recently restored.
0: And the insane murders that she committed. <laughs> yeah. I to get that joke out of the way.
1: <laughs> ah, good stuff. She, she made two more films. documentary Working Girls and the much maligned erotic thriller Love Crimes, which has some defenders i've Uh, been wanting to see love crimes for a long time you
0: know she did do an episode of the red shoe diaries about a woman that falls in love with some mexican wrestler well you know i saw a fair amount of red shoe diaries uh
1: on mute uh (laughs) when i was 13 yep uh so perhaps
0: i i will watch that revisit and maybe you'll find a passion that you haven't experienced in years oh man (laughs) God,
1: those were so exciting to me back, back then. Uh,
0: I've never seen an episode. Uh, uh, I've
1: never seen an episode with the sound on. Uh, (laughs) Or longer than like three minutes. I mean, I remember (laughs) that like, it was like, uh, uh, the guy from the X-Files, David Duchovny would mm. be on every episode and he would like check his mailbox and he would like read a letter and then you yeah. won't believe what happened to me. Well, basically. And then, you know, the episode would be, you know, a flashback from this letter. He wasn't in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would always have some, you know, soft focus, sex scene, then it would cut back to David, David Duchovny and he'd go walk his dog or something. <laughs> They, <laughs> what that, a life That that would be on Showcase As with those Like softcore Like baby blue movies From the 90s Baby blue I've never even heard of that y- Yeah 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 Well I mean That's not the franchise That's just what The time slot was called
0: Oh Blue nuit Is yeah, that the French well, version yeah 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 yeah, yeah 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 yeah. That's blue night Yeah Well that's a big uh, Translation change To baby <laughs> blue
1: <laughs> uh, Maybe we'll do A Patreon episode On that someday
0: But next week It's Lizzie Borden And until then My name is Justin Glue. I'm Will Sloan Thanks for listening So, a friend of ours, Peter Kaplowski, recently he wanted to play Speed Racer. Now, me and Peter, we've seen Speed Racer multiple times over the last few years in 35mm. Looks great, tons of fun. Once took off a day at work just to go see it at the <laughs> Tiff Bell Lightbox. But Peter wanted to watch it in 70mm film. And he wanted to do it in the Cinesphere. What's the Cinesphere, Will? The Cinesphere is
1: at a theme park in Toronto called... X-Theme Park. X-Theme Park called uh, Ontario Place, which is located at the waterfront. And it has a big wa- had a big water park and had some rides. And basically... Anybody who's in Toronto would go there when they were at the exhibition in the summer.
0: Yeah, and the exhibition still happens every summer, and that's where it takes place, where, like, a bunch of vendors and stuff like that. And
1: I think Ontario Place may come back soon. I mean, they've had events there. I mean, they've uh, been dead
0: for so long. When I was a kid and I visited Toronto with my family, we would go to Ontario Place, and I was trying to think of, like, what did we do? I guess the water park? There were some pedal boats? Uh,
1: There were pedal boats. And, yeah, it's hard to remember what was, because... Like were there rides there really? I don't think so. It felt like there was stuff. I I mean, when I was a kid, I remember there was uh one year they had like a Lego room and mm. they had a
0: Nintendo room, but and that was just a one year thing. This is a large tract of land that's laid empty for like fifteen years, just at the waterfront, and you just know? like filled with garbage as well. Yeah. But like one of the crowning achievements of Ontario Place was the Sinosphere, an actual dome structure that houses. I believe to this day, the biggest screen in Canada.
1: And it was, I think one of the first IMAX screens, mm. if not the first in the world.
0: Because uh, Canada is um, the home of the creators of IMAX. That's right. It and, was a big deal when it came out.
1: Uh, and, you know, if you're at Ontario Place and you see this dome and, you know, you walk on the Long Bridge to get there, it feels kind of like, um, you know, a faded 70s version of what the future would look like.
0: I mean, this is what Ontario Place was, right? It was an extension of like Expo 67. Yeah, or like is,
1: Epcot. Yeah. It was one of those sorts of things. And, you know, being there just just makes you realize how the future didn't turn out how people wanted it to I be. I
0: had never visited the Cinesphere before because probably when I visited Ontario Place, it played what most of these, like, new museum-style IMAX theaters do, which is they show a documentary about a trolley car or about, I don't know, space. Yeah, or,
1: or Mount Everest or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I know that I went a few times as a kid probably to see documentaries like that, but, I mean, my main memory of it was it would have that long IMAX intro that would often be longer than the movie itself. Lasers? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, we have speakers here and here and here and here.
0: Which extended to when the LIMAX is opened in Cineplexes. Yeah. they would do that thing. ah, so much fun. But the
1: last movie I saw at the Cinesphere, and I remember it very well, was a press screening of the Robert Rodriguez film Shorts. No. I swear to God. You used to do press screenings at
0: the Cinesphere? Well,
1: it was the only one I ever went to at the Cinesphere. And frankly, I think it was like really bad to put a press screening at the Cinesphere because it's not near any subway stop. You have to fucking walk... A long way from the So were you like get... the
0: shorts better be worth it? After once upon a time in Mexico, he let me down, but I'm sure he's gonna come right back. Also, Robert Rodriguez's
1: shorts, not a movie that benefits from being seen on the biggest screen in Canada. Yeah. It's a rather pedestrian-looking film.
0: Yeah, it is. That's crazy <laughs> that they actually showed it there. Cause like you said, this is a place that's very difficult to get to. Yeah. Like I even caught like an express bus from Union Station, which is the main station in Toronto. It still took like like 40 minutes to finally go down to the waterfront and let you off. Where then I had to walk another 25 minutes to get to the Cinesphere. Yeah,
1: I think they probably just didn't want the critics to show up to see shorts. So that's <laughs> That's my probably guess. what
0: it was. Uh, but our friend Peter, to make a long, like <laughs> weave right back in, um, he wanted to show Speed Racer there. And he did an Indiegogo. And he raised money. He partnered with the uh, Inside Out Festival, which is the Gay and Lesbian Festival of Toronto. And, like, Peter didn't want to make any money on this. Like, any extra money that uh, didn't go into actually, like, shipping the print or renting the venue, um, setting up all this online stuff would go directly to the charity, which is... Amazing and also crazy because Peter just wanted to see Speed Racer in the greatest format possible. I yeah. mean, if
1: you had the power and resources to, you know, just like...
0: He worked do, 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 so hard do, on do this, Do a though. goofy
1: thing like this. <laughs> yeah.
0: Like, he made posters. He did all this stuff. Essentially, so he and his friends could watch Speed Racer on the biggest screen.
1: And they got a great turnout. Yeah,
0: know? it felt like three quarter. Like, it looked full. Like, yeah. there wasn't people up in the front, but like... All the good packed. seats. Yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, you know, if a bomb
0: went off... uh, (laughs) All the Speed Racer fans would be gone, I guess? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, um we talked about it briefly that you saw Speed Racer for the first time like last year, well, I think.
1: Well, yeah, you know, when Speed Racer came out, it was in summer 2008 and it was really like against the grain of what was popular at that time. Mm-hmm. Like Iron Man and, and The Dark Knight were the two big movies that summer. And you
0: were all in for Iron Man and The Dark Knight. Uh, well, The Dark Knight especially. I
1: loved it <laughs> at, at the time. Uh, we all did, you know? Yeah. Actually, you know, maybe I should revisit The Dark Knight because maybe now that I'm past my disenchantment, I could I could You love anything.
0: it again? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, think I might like... come back Back
1: around the other end
0: an October romance of sorts <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: uh, but I finally think I got around to seeing uh, Speed Racer maybe a year and a half ago blind bought the
0: Blu-ray wow on, on blind but yeah me recommending it over yeah. and over again
1: uh, and you know very much enjoyed it mm-hmm. uh, and it looked great on Blu-ray and it looked unbelievable on 70 millimeter film and to see it in this environment you know to be trapped with this movie which the is such screen a is huge screen is huge and it's just such a sensory overload you know how they say that in a theater the movie is the environment mm. well for some movies more than others and this is one where the movie really was the environment I it' was mean. like
0: crystal clear sound an IMAX print that uh, the projection set has probably only played three times yeah there was a moment of panic where Peter didn't think uh, he was gonna have enough money to ship the gigantic IMAX print from la to toronto and he asked them oh wait this was released digitally it was one of the first released digitally in theaters can i get like a digital copy if all else fails and warner brothers said we don't have a digital copy anymore wow yeah
1: oh that's horrifying <laughs> yeah isn't the whole point of digital copies that like they can just they don't take up any space.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, they deleted; it was gone. Oh, so they no. only had this print left. And uh, Warner Brothers was really good, though. They actually uh, told Peter, "You don't gotta pay us for this." Like he paid no like fees, and the shipping was really cheap too. They're like, "We just like what you're doing." And to be honest, we really like Speed Racer too. Oh,
1: nice! <laughs> and didn't he hear that the Wachowskis were are aware of the screening? Yes, and... and they were
0: very happy about it. I mean, we were disappointed that the Cinesphere did not open, and they came down on helicopters. <laughs> but uh, you know, it was still a screening that was amazing because all these people just came out for speed racer mm-hmm. a film that when it uh, was released i remember was critically d- derided to the point that you know i don't want to name any toronto critics but they were still retweeting like oh this is a good cause but this film still sucks oh yeah yeah i
1: <laughs> yeah i know who you're talking about he knows who he knows he, who he, who he is. is yeah yeah
0: and i mean like <laughs> is that just um Hard-headedness, or I mean, I can well, I don't. Know. I can understand I mean, people that just don't like the movie.
1: I mean, frankly, I can understand it too. Yeah. I mean, a, a common a common criticism of the film is that like, um it is like sensory overload, and that you know the 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 plot mm-hmm. blah 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 doesn't sustain it blah blah blah. But I don't know, like, this is a movie where it's really all about kind of the style and the tone of but it. But
0: I also think that like the reason that I probably love the movie the way that I do is linked to the fact that it is so nakedly, like, heartfelt. It's very sweet, yeah. Yeah, like, it's very sweet. And, I mean, the whole film is just a metaphor that's laid out on the line of, like, being a creative person and doing the thing that you're passionate about. In a very
1: cruel system that is, like, built
0: against... And I know that's a hypocritical message to say, like, man, you got to fight against the system in this $200 million blockbuster. (laughs) Uh, But it's also, like, a film that, like, while it is saying that kind of stuff... It is going against the grain so much as a shot within the first two minutes of the movie of like Speed Racer's brother just waiting outside of the car. That's almost like a trumpet to the audience going like, yeah, this is how it looks. So you either accept it now or you're not going to like this movie. Well, you know,
1: the, the everything the Wachowskis have done since Speed Racer. I mean, I haven't really liked anything they've done since then, but. Uh, and I'm not even that crazy about the Matrix movies either. The first one's okay.
0: Yeah. Uh, but it's
1: fantastic. It's fa- I should say it again. Yeah. Uh, but
0: <laughs> Dark Knight Matrix. <laughs> yeah. Let's do an episode.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but i mean there's something charming about how like unhip their movies have been i mean the matrix which was so cutting edge and was so was so cool at the time and that like all these you know well, I they mean, were like, so trend setting and since then they've made these films that are so unfashionable
0: well like cloud atlas is a movie that they actually made independently like all on their own they raised the money and they like wow. did it all themselves and they actually sold it to a distributor i believe mm. and i think jupiter ascending was something very similar to that mm-hmm. and I, I mean, it's frustrating to me just because I love Speed Racer so much to look at their other films and go like, why don't I like these? Like, I think Jupiter Ascending is not good. But I what's agree. funny about Jupiter Ascending is it does have, like, fanatic Speed Racer-like super fans.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't see it. But, I mean, I, I'm i glad that people like it.
0: We're uh, really... Um, That critic that we talked about in this example of the Jupiter Ascending.
1: Yeah, I I should ask him what he thinks about Jupiter Ascending. I'm I'm sure we'll find common ground on that, frankly. Uh, But, I mean, I think Speed Racer is a more fully and coherently realized world Mm -hmm. than Jupiter Ascending is, which seems a little half-baked
0: of across the line. You get, like, sleepy Chan Chan Tam Tam in there, and a message that seems to be like, oh, you're special and you're great. But you should just go back to your menial job afterwards and not do anything.
1: You know, watching Speed Racer this time, like for the first hour, I was totally into it. And then for about 30 minutes, I was lagging, like feeling exhausted. And then I came right back up for really? the last 30 minutes of it uh, because it's so like... Well, it's a film
0: know. that like people never really focus on the fact that structurally it is insane. Yes. Where it's like flashback was in flashback. The first 25 minutes... Just is just essentially the climax of another film that sums up all the stuff that you would have probably seen up till then.
1: You know, Peter uh, mentioned to me once an interesting idea. Imagine if Speed Racer uh, had been a big hit and then Warner Brothers had given them Superman. Yeah
0: that would have been insane. yeah I mean at one point the Wachowskis were going to do after the Matrix a dark version of Plastic Man, <laughs> the guy that stretches and it was going to star Will Smith. Oh wow. And uh, I read the script. It was not good. <laughs> but that's interesting because those are filmmakers that like The Matrix are like dark and gritty. And then when they tried to fight as much against that with stuff like Speed Racer. Yeah. Uh, to an audience that is like, no, thanks, except for crazy people like me, Peter. And I will and, well, yeah.
1: me, I like it a lot. And, yeah. you know, our, our numbers are growing. Well,
0: you want to you share our Speed Racer tattoos? No, I don't know.
1: I mean, I don't do. I don't I probably don't love it as much as you. But yeah. I mean, listen, you're going to have to win over some of the moderates if you want to <laughs> win the next election. So oh, is
0: that the way that it goes? <laughs> exactly. No, I just want to turn the people who would hate the movie into lovers of it. <laughs> That'll work, right? <laughs>